0: Welcome to the inner world of filmmaking. I'm your host, Tammy McGarrow. I'm a writer, director, editor, and a podcast producer. In this show, I will interview filmmakers in all facets of production and distribution. I'm so excited to have film director and producer, Ansley Sawyer, who has worked for BBC, National Geographic, and TEDx. She specializes in run-and-gun filmmaking and producing difficult-to-access human stories around the world. Welcome, Ansley. So happy to have you on the show today.
1: Aw, oh, thank you so much, Tammy. I'm so
0: happy to be here. So I wanted to start with, tell us how you got into filmmaking, and in particular, filmmaking and traveling the world.
1: <sighs> oh, man. Well, for the, what a great question. The two have always been inextricably linked for me. I actually got started uh, traveling first, and I don't know how many of the people on your show always knew that they wanted to be a filmmaker. I am not one of them. I always wanted to be an actor. I always wanted to be on stage. I went to theater school in Paris, but well before that, I started indulging in sort of like what I like to call human storytelling. But I didn't have a format at the time. I didn't even have a camera. I just had like a little point and click. And from the time I was 18, I was traveling the world getting international jobs. So I worked as an au pair starting five days after I graduated from high school in France, the following summer, I worked on sailboats in Greece. So just finding that you can use social networks connections to have otherwise unattainable experiences for not that much money, because you can work locally, you can build community basically wherever you are. So those were my sort of my early experiments in, I, I, I won't even call it budget travels, just like lifestyle in other places, basically. So you're just like building a new world somewhere else. Um, so I, I did that a lot as much as I could when I was younger, whenever I had free time. And then something funny happened when I was in theater school, I was living in France and I got injured, I hurt my knee. And so um, that's a whole other rabbit hole, but I started directing as a result of that. So I couldn't be on stage so much. So I was sort of the outside eye and I realized I really enjoyed facilitating other people's creative pursuits and ideas and helping them find the best way of, of fulfilling their story. At the same time, I spent my last 500 euro on the best Canon I could find. It's called a 100D, but here in the States, we call that a Rebel. And it's a great camera, especially for a beginner. And at the time, I was backpacking, couch surfing, hitchhiking, sailing, boating biking my way across Europe um you know in in those little holidays and there's so many of them in France and I started realizing like these two worlds felt really at odds like this creative expression world of stage acting uh felt like I, I couldn't express myself in the way that felt really fulfilling to me and also exploring all of these international stories and and just to say it, it wasn't just trying to check country names off my bucket list. All of these places I really made deep connections in. Like when you get a job somewhere and you have neighbors and you become enmeshed in the fabric of life, you start noticing not just within the framework of your own personal experience, but also just on a, on a human level, uh, a lot of commonalities and those experiences really informed my eventual arrival in filmmaking, um, which happened in about 10 years ago. So I'm loving photography, I'm traveling the world, I'm becoming disenchanted with theater slowly but surely. I'm leaning more into directing. I'm using the camera out of photo mode, going into video mode in the worst way. I mean everything was interlaced and I'm sure the shutter speed is wrong in 75% of it, but there was a joy, there was a curiosity, there was um like a pure motivation for capturing human stories to find the commonality, you know, even though people speak different languages, they come from different personal experiences, they have different religions. So much of what we all want is exactly the same. And that really, those experiences, a lot of people didn't get it (laughs) for a long time. A lot of my friends and family didn't see, you know, the common denominator in a lot of these experiences, but it formed in me a very strong vision for the kinds of stories that I want to tell, be, and the way that I want to tell them, which is I'm not a narrator, but I'm a, I can be a curator. And through my skills as a filmmaker, I can empower and uplift underheard stories and often marginalized stories, because that has become my life philosophy, kind of what I just shared.
0: Wow. So how are you getting jobs? I mean, were they all under the table? Or did you have dual citizenship to, to travel the
1: world and then get jobs? People think it's really hard to, especially as an American, and I'm speaking as an American with an American passport. People think it's really hard to live in another country. It can be, but it's just about as hard in my experience as moving from Chicago to like Miami. Like logistically, it's really, there's, there's an upfront bump. It can be, it could be hard to find ways to overcome all of the logistical challenges. Once you overcome them, it's really easy. And it's actually an incredibly empowering exercise and this is these exercises are at the core of what it means to be a film producer by the way you're faced with a challenge and you have to find a way to overcome it and the challenge might sound impossible like get up on some rafters of the incredible bamboo scaffolding in Hong Kong because nobody's ever got that shot before well that seems like it should be impossible how can you solve that problem so the way that I first learned how to solve these problems and what later became essential in my career as a film producer and eventually film director was I love sailing. I grew up sailing with my parents, not like Rosé and shrimp sailing, like sunburned raccoon eyes scared for your life. Half the time sailing and (laughs) people don't often know that there's a big difference between the two. And so I I grew up having this skill, which is that I knew how to crew on sailboats in a pretty advanced way. And it wasn't an expensive boat. We just had like a fiberglass 25 foot thing that my parents sailed with their friends on the weekends in upstate New York. So I was like, I love sailing. I want to get a job working as a sailor in Greece. I just got a crazy idea. And so I wrote it down in my journal and every day for about two weeks, I emailed sailing companies that I Googled. I just Googled Greece sailing company. You know what it just Sometimes it sounds so dumb, but when you send ten emails and you make mistakes and you forget to not copy paste the same, you know, like you're learning as you go, right? Right? There's all these social skills that are baked into what sounds like an obvious recipe, but chocolate chip cookies are hard to make. But once you've made them a hundred times, it gets easier, and you can do it in your sleep. And so, na- so. Eventually, somebody responded, they hired me provisionally, and they turned out to be a total liar. And, you know, like, it was a wonderful, terrible experience. You know, I worked for a month and a half on a sailboat, and I didn't get paid for it. And that taught me life. (laughs) Right, you know, (laughs) like that taught me even more about about the world. But I had that experience. I got another job. If I can just like go down this rabbit hole for a second. You have to trust your gut too when you're in these experiences. Cause a lot of people were like, aren't you afraid? And I get, I get variations on this question a lot. Just how do you know it's safe? Oh, it sounds like that guy screwed you over. How do you know that that's not going to happen to you? And everything in life, especially for women is a managed risk. Mm-hmm. And especially given current events, I feel like, and especially in my experience Living in the United States is more dangerous than just about anything I've ever done. I've gotten into the most trouble living in Philadelphia, living in Chicago, living in Seattle, and living in New York. And those are progressive, safe cities, right? And, like, the worst things that have ever happened to me have happened there, period. So... I don't want people to think, oh, well, you know, she found trouble internationally to be dispositive of the potential for what it means to open your life to aligning with your vision for your creative storytelling. So for me, it was I want to go and sail. And the guy ended up being a New Jersey American Greek guy who wasn't honest, uh, went back on our contract and then later set me up with a sale um, where I worked with some incredible people. And they paid me. And so there's, you have to have managed risk. You have to have good judgment for all of these ventures because I was, I was 19 and didn't know that a guy from New Jersey was potentially more dangerous than a guy from Greece. And you don't know. But once I got that vibe, once I realized he wasn't treating me with respect, once I realized he was overworking me, he, did, he fell back on many of his other promises, it was painful for me to separate myself from that situation because that was my foundation in Greece. You know, I had a promise of a job and I was hesitant to let go of that toxic element, like really hesitant. And the moment that I did, I had time and energy for something better to come in and I made the money back anyway. Well, you know, so yeah. go ahead. And also on that point, it got you to Greece. Exactly. And maybe that's
0: all it was meant to do. It got you and it got you some connection. So Yeah. That's it, and then you learn from there, and you made it work. You didn't give up, and that's the good thing. Where you could have
1: come home, you could have said, "Oh, darn," but you didn't. Yeah, no, you can't. You can't. You can't give up because things will always go wrong. People will, if you're looking for disappointment, people will always disappoint you. But like I said, once my time freed up and my energy freed up, I actually at that time I had a little point and shoot, and this was in two thousand nine, I think. Greece was melting down at the time economically. Um, I don't know if your listeners remember. Like there, there were a lot of yeah. economic uh, difficulties in Eastern Europe at the time. Bullets were flying in Athens at some point, point. and so I just went, I made my dad really nervous. I went around with a little tiny point and shoot just in front of like McDonald's or whatever in Athens, and just asked people like, "How do you feel right now? How do you feel in this moment?" Because I didn't have a project. I did. I've never done anything with any of that media, but being there like sincerely passionate about hearing other people's life experiences and oh, I'll, p- I'll pick up a camera and we didn't even have iPhones at the time, you know, like the idea right. of being able to conjure an audio recording device from your pocket, it was completely novel for me. I mean, even to call home, we used to have those little calling cards. Right. I remember mm-hmm. that? So like it was such a, yes. And pay phones. So there's that. <laughs> and pay phones. And it was such an, Uninterconnected world that to create these relationships in both directions. So we got to have these great conversations that I recorded where I asked them how they felt about their political economy and they turned it back on me. You know, even at the time, like NATO's invasion of and bombing of certain eastern european countries was an unknown fact to me at the time and some rooms that i walked into in greece i was the most unpopular person because the memory of you know some american presidents was still very unpopular and very fresh in their minds that had nothing to do with me i'm a teenager i'd never even voted before you know but being able to come face to face with this incredible maelstrom of different opinions different voices it's really instrumental for me in learning how to tell a story from a human first perspective.
0: Well, yeah. And it's interesting what our path leads us to and our experiences that end up helping us in the end. And with you, I mean, you know, um, traveling at a young age uh, in international countries, um, making connections and stuff. Um, probably helped you in the challenges that come up on sets, as we know, or in filmmaking and leading you to this specializing in running solo or small group productions here. So let's talk about your film, Nomads of Mongolia. How did you get that gig and what
1: kind of crew did you have? Oh, this is such a great uh, topic to talk about. This is also a natural progression of how did I get into filmmaking? So just to take a step backwards, I wanted to be an actor. I was traveling. I was slowly starting to question stage acting for a lot of other creative reasons after receiving an incredibly fulfilling and challenging theater education. I like to say going to study physical theater at at Ecole Lecoq in Paris after that. I can do anything as a creative person. That was actually one of the hardest things I've ever had to do. And I'd love to talk more about that and like discipline and rigidity and education and how it impacts Praxis. Like that's one of my favorite things. Maybe we can go down that rabbit hole later, but I kind of wandered for a bit. I, I worked in Philadelphia theater. I was a part-time barista. I was editing photos and becoming obsessed with that process rage quit my job as a barista in Philadelphia because I got a job to work on a sailboat in the Caribbean. And I kind of, my world was rocky and rolly for a bit, as many young 20 somethings are. And everything was self-funded. I had virtually no money. And I saw this incredible filmmaker whose name is Brandon Lee. I saw one of his video projects come out. And in the same way that I emailed you know, a hundred yachting companies until somebody hired me, I found his email and I sent him a message. And I was like, Hey, you travel a lot. And so do I. So if you ever need any help, let me know. And I'd be happy to help. I wasn't even looking for a job. I just resonated deeply with the point of view that he shared through his short films. And I wasn't even interested in filming, (laughs) frankly, like I, I liked photography. I liked the facilitation of human connection through the medium, through capturing a moment. Yes. And that I liked the fact that you could give something to someone. They could walk away with a photo. They could walk away, hopefully with your expertise translated into an appreciation for what they had to offer in that moment. So fast forward, I'm working for Brandon as his assistant Online. Uh, we've never met. And I wasn't making any money, and it was the best money I'd, I'd ever made. And it was very challenging. I was working really hard. And I was assisting him on all the most mundane issues and challenges that he needed to solve. So from the ground up, then we started, I started throwing out storyline ideas. And then You know, I remember that somebody that I met in California through couch surfing had done their doctorate on Kazakh culture and traditions. And Brandon, to me, said one day, what is the coolest story that you've ever heard of? Because he was just in the mood to make an extraordinary film that nobody had ever seen before. He and I, over the course of our collaboration in both of our careers, have utilized this practice a lot, which is how do you take a non-commercial approach with a verite like, production style and run-and-gun production style mm-hmm. to make a film that you don't want to sell to anybody. The reason why is because when people see that film, people being brand managers, people being agencies searching for directors, anything else, the list goes on and on and on, they will think of visionaries and luminaries. They will pe- think of people who have been featured on Smithsonian, people who got a Vimeo staff pick, people who whose creative vision wasn't impacted by 75 other stakeholders, you know, Mm -hmm. so much of creative commercial work has to go through that filter. And there's nothing wrong with that. But sometimes you have to make art for art's sake, not because you're trying to sell it. And that was exactly the approach that we took. Mm -hmm. So nomads of Mongolia was an idea born of how can we make something impossibly beautiful that's never existed before. Long story short, I found a village where these folks live, these folks being Kazakh nomadic eagle hunters, meaning they use golden eagles, which are actually the biggest raptors. Like they have the largest wingspan from tip to tip. Um, They use those creatures to hunt for their living. And they are true nomads. They live in the far western Altai region along the Mongolian-Russian border, but many of these people are Kazakh, which means they're ethnically diverse from Mongolians, from Russians, and many of them are Muslim. Most of them are practicing Muslims. So to see this incredible landscape, to to experience this completely unique uh, culture... That that experience is mirrored in so many other parts of the world, including Kazakhstan and the United States, but that was a completely unique space and time. And since then, many other films have come out featuring these same people, the, the Kazakh nomadic eagle hunters. Um, I'm proud to say that ours was at the very beginning of that. I don't know if we inspired it. Um, but to answer the second part of your question, it was just Brandon and myself and on this film i was the producer and i contributed some footage but i have to say brandon is truly he's the director director of photography and editor of this film truly the genius of nomads of mongolia and this was my i got thrown into the fire of how to become a run and gun filmmaker there's nothing like getting on a flight to mongolia <sighs> And I just bought a Sony a6000 like two weeks or no, two months before and learning like crash course, so nervous. I don't even know how to use this camera. I don't know if he's going to use me for footage. We had so many interesting scenarios that we found ourselves in. Very, very challenging in terms of health and safety. Um, So many adventures I could recall to you, but I think... The real takeaway with Nomads of Mongolia was that Brandon trusted me. He went out on a limb. He brought me with him. Um, and we supported each other through probably the most, the most or the top three most difficult production environment that I've ever been in, including like life-threatening food poisoning for both of us. Oh, wow. And we, we were out of helicopter range. So if anything happened, it would have been like a four-day drive to get back to the closest hospital. So, you know, that was definitely the most remote I've ever been. And and we really leaned on each other in those moments.
0: Yeah. And that's a lot to just have two people. And th- was this the first time you actually met him
1: in person? Uh, yes. It, yes. That was the first time we actually met in person. We had been working together um, virtually for several months. Where, where so, did he live? He was nomadic at the time. And so, and I was somewhat nomadic at the time. So he, I forget where he came from. I don't remember. Okay. Um, but he, <laughs> this is so embarrassing. It gets worse, Tammy. Yeah. So so I'm so nervous. I had this horrifying layover in Moscow. It's like 12, 12 hours. And I didn't have money for like a $50 hotel or whatever. Like I had nothing. I had nothing. So I'm exhausted. I've never taken such a long flight before by the time I get to Ulaanbaatar which is the capital of Mongolia. Mongolia is the least densely populated country in the world, and it's the fourth biggest by Mm landmass. So it's about as big and as far and stretched out as it's possible to be. So Ulaanbaatar was our first stop before traveling for three or four more days to get to where we needed to be. I'm exhausted. Check into the Airbnb. It's on the fourth floor, no elevator. I accidentally fall asleep, and I miss Brandon knocking on the door of the Airbnb. This is the first time we're supposed to meet. And he has to get a hotel for the night. And this, this, is, this is how I started the production. And you better believe I beat myself up for every moment of the entire shoot after that. Not because, simple mistake, but because he did something incredible. He pulled me aside. And he's not that much older than me, but he pulled me aside the next day. And, and in the most wonderful way, you know, he, he's the boss here. Yeah, he, he, He's the genius. Like, he knows everything. And he pulled me aside and he's like, so we're going to work really hard on this shoot. And this gets back to your whole point of, well, it's only two people. We do that on purpose, he showed me throughout the next weeks. Because when you have a two-person team and you count on each other and both people work really hard, it's often better than a bigger team. We're doing it on purpose. Two people can achieve things that four people or six people or 10 people can't. Because when you're focusing on bringing the human story to light, you put the story first, rule number one, everything else comes in to support that. And many people who work in more union settings often don't understand that because they're coming from a perspective of, well, you have less to offer And it's sort of like the via negativa way of looking at it. And the way that I like looking at it and the way that Brandon taught me to look at it was that you have less to distract you and you have less pulling you away from building true intimacy with your subject. And in a film like nomads of Mongolia, any more than two people would have disrupted that intimacy. Trust me, we were disruptive enough. Right. Like we got like these people let us into their homes. They let, they live in small tents that can be dismantled in one hour right? Like we are a burden on their resources. They are inviting us into their lives. And so for us to be able to offer anything in return that isn't exploitative, um, we need to be as respectful as possible. So it's not just about taking up less space. It's also about keeping a cohesive creative vision. And the last thing I'll say about this is I've got my backpack over there and my camera right there. When you're able to focus not on having the best, best Camera, and this is the thing that bugs me a lot in the scene is like, what's the best lens? What's the best mic? What's the best action cam? It all you can do everything with a GoPro 3. Yeah, you know, Maddie Brown showed us that, you know, five years ago. You can use a toy camera if you don't have a cohesive vision and if you don't put the human story first, none of your gear matters when you focus on having your gear. And your production approach support your human-centered perspectives that you're trying to empower and uplift. Then you get to choose the best mic for the situation that you're filming. So sometimes it's, you know, something dinky. Sometimes it's a shotgun mic. Sometimes it's a $3,000 Sennheiser setup because audio is really important to you. Sometimes it's hiring the local sound person for that day. So there is no best in these circumstances. The best approach that we found in in the running gun technique that Brandon taught me was to put the human story first and then to build it up from the ground up.
0: No, I totally agree. And I get how you have to almost be like a voyeur in the situation and not influence what's going on as well. And I would think with a bigger crew, it gets
1: too many people. People get nervous. Yeah. 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 People have never been to Mongolia before. They want to know if their travel insurance was activated yesterday or today. Their parents are worried about them. Don't get me wrong. I trust people. I believe in people. I invest in people. But when you have a small, united, disciplined, rigorous group of people who rely on each other for everything, it actually goes so much more smoothly than you would imagine. And yeah, we work 12-hour days. But what we make in those 12-hour days or 13 or 14-hour days is impactful for, for months, years to come. And not just in the filmmaking community, but also what we're able to offer in, in a documentary sense. A lot of the work that we can create on such a tight timeline and in such a intimate network, I, I've seen how it can change the world. And so I, I deeply believe in it. Is it for everyone? No. <laughs> what, what I try to do film projects that others have proposed to me using this production style absolutely not i think this is a very unique approach and maybe it won't be appropriate in the future maybe maybe this is isolated in space and time maybe this is a production approach that we will see that's unique to the to the aughts and the teens and the 20s i don't know Mm -hmm. but it's it's something that has is working for us now because the other thing i'll say is Many people have felt liberated by COVID in terms of being able to become a digital nomad as a result of like the unmeshing of the social fabric, which is like, you have to be in a desk at a place every day. And I think a lot of people in your audience might be thinking like, I'm not a nomadic film producer. This isn't relevant to me. And I would just simply argue that conjures a lack of imagination because anything can be solved. If you have a sense of urgency and you can think creatively and thinking that you need to rely on, you know, like I need this much financing or I need this much insurance or I need this much support, either emotional or financial or, or, you know, psychic before beginning a project, I think is the number one reason why we don't all create what we want to create on a daily basis. Like one of my favorite questions to me when I'm meeting somebody new is what, what's your dream project? You know, what do you really want to, and sometimes that's an enraging question because there's so much wrapped into that, but I didn't start in film to make the best films that have ever been made. That's not my calling because there's a million other DPs in Brooklyn sipping lattes right now who can do that better than me. And I'm not going to try to win that fight at all. I want to, make the world a better place by building bridges bridges to empathy and intimacy is crucial. And it's inextricably linked with that. And I've just spent a lot of years finding ways to use small, intimate teams to build intimacy so that you're able to feel what the person says more deeply. And, and that's, that's emotional cinematic filmmaking.
0: Yeah, uh, I totally agree. And uh, it, it got me a couple questions for for what you just shared. One is how long was the filming of that project? How long were you there for? Five weeks. Five weeks. We, wow.
1: Yes. And and part of the schedule. So we were there for five weeks, totally. I think we shot for three and a half of those weeks. And it came in phases. We didn't know what to expect. Pre-production is crucial in a run-and-gun production process because you can only shoot as well as you've prepared. But the flip side of that is that you won't know what you're really in for until you get on the ground. For a couple different reasons, whatever research you're able to do is whatever literature already exists. And if you're trying to do something completely innovative... Then you can't do it derived from the storylines that are already shared on New York Times. You know some, somebody's already written an article about it, mm-hmm. but it's important to know what's been done. So it's all part of the literature review, as I'm calling. You want to watch all the videos that have ever been done on the subject. What are the tropes? What are the stereotypes? So I say this because when we got on the ground, We went there for a festival, the Golden Eagle Festival. We found out that the festival was more or less kind of a circus and that it wasn't super interesting or authentic on a human level because people were just sort of parading, which is sort of interesting, but it enables parachuting, which in the journalism world means you fly in, you're there for two days, you fly out and it has a very negative impact on the community. Often especially journalists, don't have a choice. They didn't ask to go to that assignment. And according to journalistic ethics, it's not inappropriate. But in the documentary world, the impact that you have on those communities is the most important thing because exploitation is completely unacceptable. Documentaries are optional. At any point, anybody else can share their own experience. It's just that Kazakh nomadic eagle hunters don't tend to have an A7S three. You know, so So we can offer resources in respect of their experience. So that's why we stayed for, quote unquote, so long. But each day was an exploration of revisiting the story. So again, saying this again, putting the story first, we realized the festival wasn't interesting. And actually, it felt kind of gross. We were there taking photos, taking footage. We had to pay for a lot of exposure, which is appropriate. And it felt transactional and we weren't able to access the human story and the human connection that we wanted. So instead we used the festival as a casting call. I'm saying in quotes, instead of feeling panicked and competing with dozens of other, uh, people who have like come in internationally to be able to take footage and media from this process. I mean, the elbows were flying, you know, like people with longer lenses than mine were definitely elbowing me out of the way. It's a gross feeling. And what we didn't said was we put our cameras down and we walked around and we made relationships with people. We got a fixer, which is a local guide and a translator and somebody who understands filmmaking and media production processes. And we spent several weeks driving around with him, visiting the families that we met at the festival and spending days with them and filming them in their off moments and in the beautiful moments between grandfather and and grandchild or brothers. And the most incredible thing about nomads that I really appreciate is that we didn't use any words. The whole film is nonverbal so that any person watching it should have a visceral feeling for these human themes, such as, rivalry between brothers or paternal love, you know? And like, what does it feel like to love and to miss and to crave? I mean, this is so crucial because I don't speak Kazakh and neither do my viewers. And they look so different and they act so differently than the people that I grew up with. But what we really wanted to communicate was we don't need to speak the same language. We all want the same things. We all want to be respected, you know, and like, it's a it's a relatable journey into their experience and without building intimacy and taking the time to slow down and it took a major toll on our bodies to film at a moment's notice every day for several weeks I'm sure I'm sure we wouldn't have had the final result
0: Right yeah and this may be a stupid question you were saying that they all live in tents
1: I mean did you not have electricity I love this question and I don't want to misrepresent them so what they're really called is gears spelled g-e-r and they're different they look the same as yurts but for the kazakhs they call them gears just wanted to respect them by calling it the right thing um there's no electricity sometimes there's a deep cycle marine battery that they use for like a single light bulb to like cook from at night but they're nomads with motorcycles and uh animals mostly horseback Um, so resources are extremely limited. So we were responsible for bringing rechargeable batteries. We had an adapter for our car. Basically, whenever power was available, we greedily sucked it up and recharged our batteries. It also taught discipline. Okay. We can never leave the camera running for any reason. We have to check our batteries every single night, every single morning, every single chance that we get. So we're always working. We're always focused Hundred percent of the time, I didn't enjoy my time in Mongolia from a personal standpoint because it wasn't about that. And a lot of people look at travel filmmaking, especially or destination filmmaking, especially as like, oh, you can go on vacation. It's not. It's it is it is grueling. In fact, I'm I'm speaking to you from my home office in New York City. This is my vacation. This is my rest and relaxation. Like this is home is restful. And, and I have a different relationship with travel, as many people who travel for work do. So the other thing is just we don't use devices that guzzle a lot of energy. We're very careful about what we put into our backpacks. We buy a battery that's more expensive because it retains energy better and resources better. And in many ways, I think the running gun production approach is similar to... Are you into hiking at all, Tammy? Yeah, I do hike, yes. There's ultra-light hiking, and that means that everything that you put into your backpack down to the gram should be investigated and questioned and optimized. Mm-hmm. And I got started with this in travel first, but it really translates very well to filmmaking. Like, is why is your toothbrush so thick? You know what I mean? Like, how can you have everything as small as possible so that... You know, if you only have four shirts, and you have six batteries, things become very simple, and you don't lose anything, and you don't break anything. And you're focused solely, again, on putting the story first.
0: Well, and I think uh, you brought up a really good point when you were speaking on your journey and uh, all the hard work that you do and the smaller crew, when you have two people in the problem solving, because there's always challenges to any project that you're on, there's challenges, they're just different. But what I love is, is that... If you have more people, you have more minds to problem solve. But the less people, it really empowers you to know you've got everything you need in here and you can work it
1: out. Yes, 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 (laughs) absolutely. And sometimes convincing a third or fourth or fifth person of the conclusion that you've already come to can take up a lot of energy, and it can be really exhausting. I'm not against bigger teams. I've done a lot of commercial work where for client-facing purposes, you need a 10-person team in craft services for the day. I don't like it, personally. I don't think it builds into... I'm all about building intimacy, and how... and does building intimacy show up on screen? I think eye lines are important. I'll give you an example. I did a commercial... Uh, remotely, because uh, I, w- I was getting married, but I hired my two very, very dear friends, Josh and Blaze, to do a commercial uh, for a healthcare company out in Detroit. So one of them flew in from Canada, the other from Long Island, and I was producing and directing remotely. And it was about a woman who her son had brain cancer, and they were housing insecure, and they didn't have any furniture. And as a result of the benefits through his health insurance, they also had this other program, which was like helping them to furnish the home and making sure that the family was comfortable in their home. And this is a perfect example of why intimacy on set is crucial because we're sent there by a health insurance company to empower their human story. But the value of the equipment that was mandated by the client was worth more than everything inside that house. And it's embarrassing. Yeah. And if you're there to empower their story, but you've got lights shining in their face in a way that natural light through the window, you know, that might be better actually from a documentary approach. Yeah. That lighting is sufficient. You know, maybe you can put in a couple of other lights to get like an eye light and a hair light, but you can be subtle. It's so important to not just understand your audience, but to understand who, whose story you're telling and why. Not just because your client gave you money and because they expect that you tell a good story. They will be happier with the story that you tell if you truly ennoble your subject's experience by not considering them a subject, but by a, a, a precious resource who invited you into their home. They didn't need to do that. And they could kick you out at any, at any moment and to walk away with a commercial about how their experience has been empowered is so insulting. It, it, it has the potential to be so insulting. And so like they will go through their community, not only disgruntled with the client, but disgruntled with you as a person. And it's no big deal if you're leaving, but what kind of life is that? Who, what, kind of, what kind of reputation are you building for, for yourself? And all of that comes back. All of that comes back in one way or the other. Whatever energy you put in, you will get back. So when you make sincere relationships with people and you don't just see them as subjects or characters, but you really want to genuinely hear about what they have to share with you, they will tell you things that they've never told anybody else. And it really does show up on screen. And they won't just say lines because the client wants them to. They'll dig deep and they'll tell you what it's like to have suffered and to have overcome those challenges. That will make people cry. And that will make a difference in the world.
0: Right. No, I totally agree. And that's a great thing that you just brought up because I didn't even think about that. And also, you know, when you have like a whole bunch of people in the room and somebody's having to tell a personal story, I mean, that's tough. And and we have to be, as filmmakers, cognitive of that to say, everybody leave the room and let it just be the camera person and me and asking the questions or something, you know? We have to be thinking about other people, like you're saying. And while you're building connections, you are deeply uh, caring for other people and thinking about that,
1: which then tells a better story because you're creating a bond with the person that you're a million percent. And that bond is priceless. It, it is time sensitive. And you have one or two, if you're lucky, chances to establish that bond once it's over, it's over. In pre-production, you can figure out your camera settings. You can communicate with your crew so that they're not breaking the intimacy on set. You, you can do so many things in advance. What you can never do ever again is shaking somebody's hand and looking them in the eye. You get one shot and that's it. And everything that follows comes from that. Every, the mutual respect that you'd show or don't show for each other lives only in that space and time. And that's what I learned from theater. You know, it's not about pretending to be something. It's not about holding out a character. It's about accessing true emotions that you feel for yourself. I accept commercial clients based off, I say no to a lot of commercial clients, because I don't think that their story may may or may not need to be shared, you know, like, but if something relates to a story that we all need to hear, I am genuinely excited to tell 100% of the stories that I've been commissioned to tell, because I believe that there is an opportunity to share a story that's never been heard before. Yeah. And when you're acting like somebody that you're not, that's a great way to experience imposter syndrome. Right.
0: Well, and also just on another note, like when you are interviewing this person in their world, I mean, what an opportunity for you to get to experience something that you would never experience in your day to, you know, that kind of intimacy and that kind of story that just changes you. Yeah as we see these, you know, films or or commercials that you hope are on a human level where you can really uh, feel. I think that that's the best is when I watch something and it makes me cry. And then I know, wow, they did it. They did it because I'm, I'm sad and I'm crying over what I just heard versus I know I'm supposed to be sad, but I don't feel it.
1: Yep. And sometimes you can't put your finger on it and other people don't know how to put their finger on it. And it's like capturing lightning in a bottle, you know, but mirror neurons are a hell of a drug, aren't they? You watch yes. somebody truly crying, truly feeling their emotions or not even crying, truly joyful. You know, this is one of the first things that Brandon taught me as he was teaching me the, the basics of video storytelling in a Jeep uh in a Russian sheep <laughs> is that the true, I think it's seven pure emotions are what we're always looking for. And every story boils down to them, rage, avarice, the, the rest are escaping, but you know them when you see them, it's like the yeah, Supreme court ruling on pornography. You know it, when you see it, right? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> right. Yeah. And you know, you know when somebody's really feeling something. And so, The only thing I want to add is like, it is very easy to manipulate emotionally when you're aware of your own emotions and what emotional arcs you need to hit. Mm -hmm. So especially in the verite world where you're asking people difficult questions in the example of like, we don't exist talking to them about their experience in the refugee civil war context. It is essential that you never manipulate and that you're constantly asking yourself, is this exploitation? Have I created a space where they feel safe to share or have I pushed them into a situation and they're aware of the subject that I'm interested in? Those two things are completely different perspectives and approaches. And it is nobody's job except the directors to maintain that vision. And there is no excuse for allowing yourself the one other person on your team or however many people are in your team from deviating from that mandate.
0: Yeah. And then how does one know if they're crossing the line? Do you feel it's just a gut thing that you should just know? Or are there warning signs to say this
1: is specifics when you're doing it? (laughs) Yeah, I think it's both. I think it depends on the project. I think two things. The director should maintain enough emotional bandwidth to scan and to have the emotional intelligence and awareness to notice when scanning that anyone on set is uncomfortable, including crew, because often crew can see or feel things from their perspective that the director can't because the director is focused on other things. But most especially your subject or the people being interviewed. That's the first thing you have to feel deeply, essentially. I like to think of it as antenna. Are my antenna active? or are they busy with other internal processes. Right. And if I have other internal processes I need to pause, address those because I can't I'm I've learned that I'm not as good at multitasking as I think I am. Yes. Address those needs because they're probably relevant so I can go back to scanning. That's the first part. Second part is creating space. Asking obvious questions like do you need to take a break? Would you like a drink of water? Is this okay? Do you feel comfortable telling me about this? And I'd kind of volunteer a third, which is just creating space no matter what. Interview for less time than you think to. Throw in softballs. Create compliment sandwiches. Go easy on people. Don't smack people in the face with difficult emotional questions back to back to back to back. I've seen that happen on set with other directors. It's exhausting for everyone. Just don't do it. It's, it, is the, it is the height of exploitation and it's not worth it because every, once you exhaust people and once you lose that trust, you can't build it back up again. And if you're in a rush, slow down, stay another day, cancel your flight. You would regret it if you flew back, realized that your, your subject wasn't good enough, and then you have to fly back or you have to scrap the project. That has happened to me in the past. Projects have been canceled that had full budgets. For those precise reasons, it's not worth it. Just slow down. So um, when you were saying
0: like, uh, shorter interviews, what do you mean by that? So like, should you have a couple different times you interview them so that you can get what you need? But you're not exhausting them with Oh, and another thing, let's go deeper, let's go deeper kind of thing. And how
1: do you pull back and then go back again? One of my favorite things to do is have a whole day without the camera. I call it a scout day. Mm -hmm. I like to meet people. Um, and I'm about to do a project with special Olympics in seven countries starting on July 3rd and this, thank you. And it's, it's a, it's a, it's an example of a commercial verite, uh, production approach where, you know, this isn't a passion project. I'm doing it on behalf of a client. Um, I'm directing a two person crew in each location to tell the story of incredible medical professionals within the intellectual disabilities community who make a difference in the world and to tell basically a hero's story of what they do Mm -hmm. uh, in Latin America and Asia, all around the world. So (laughs) I need to have all these videos done by August, and it's August 15th and it's June 27th and I have to go to seven countries. So I don't have the luxury of time. So taking your question into a practical example, I'm spending all the time that I can in each location And traveling as quickly as possible. So I have four days. The first day is a scout day. Then I shoot for two days. And then I edit for the fourth day. And I back up in DIT. That way it's still fresh and I don't ever lose footage or anything. Looking at the first day, you know, it would be possible to say from the client side or from from any person who doesn't understand this production approach. Why not spend three days shooting? You want to maximize your time on the ground with camera in hand. Because... They don't know me. I'm somebody from New York. I'm flying to Santiago, driving to Valparaiso, and I have no idea what the community is going through. And I don't want to parachute in, but I have no choice. So the least I can do is put my camera down for the first day and listen. And when you create relationships based off of listening, rather than based off of taking, and footage, media production is literally taking. You're taking from people. They have to be willing to give. So for one whole day, we walk around, they show me whatever they want to show me. Oftentimes, they think it's going to look great on film. It's not. (laughs) You know, they're like, this is the office where we have all our meetings. I'm like, it has no windows. This is awful. They need to be heard. They need to be acknowledged. And it is in my best interest to take it in and say, wow, this is a great office. I'm so glad you showed it to me. You know, I saw a bench outside under a beautiful tree. Can you show me that? What a great space you have here. And that way we don't show up on day one and go, this office sucks. We can't film here. There's a huge difference between those two approaches. And when you have that subtle relationship forward approach, people want to help you and you need their help. You need to know, okay, what's the market with the like loud friendly ladies who I can film B-roll with. They'll take you there, but if you treat them like a commodity, they'll say go back to your hotel and figure it out on your own. Right. It's a huge difference in access.
0: So who are your two other crew members? What are, what are they in charge of?
1: It depends on the location. So in this particular production process, it's it's me. I'm just doing it and then I'm hiring a producer in each location so i'm lucky enough to work with one of my all-time favorite people um they're a producer here in new york and i'm flying them to two locations otherwise i'm hiring locally so i'm hiring um uh, and it, it really it really depends so for example like one of our films is in macau there's a 10-day quarantine for all people entering macau even from hong kong and i made a huge very successful film in hong kong people can't get from the and i know a ton of filmmakers in hong kong people can't get from Hong Kong to Macau over the bridge. Like you're in Macau Macau, or you're not in Macau. So every location has a different production approach that's tailored to the needs of the story. And also mm-hmm. producing in COVID with, with this approach is, I mean, we're all figuring it out as we go along. We have to stay safe. So right. bringing in fewer foreigners makes the most sense. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So, so you're, I thought you had you and two other people. So you and one other person is the crew yeah. Yeah. and the producer. So you're going to be filming it, doing everything. Yep. Lights film. Yep. Wow. Everything. Does that ever feel um, challenging? <laughs> like, Oh my God, it's all on me. <laughs> or are you just like, I've done this so many times. I just know, you know, like in all the gear you've got, or are you going to rent the gear there? Yeah. How are you going to pack? Yeah. Let's talk about the running yeah. gun. What are you
1: bringing? All right. If you're not looking at your camera, now, it's time to do so. So this is my Peak Design 30-liter backpack. Okay. I like Just like every other filmmaker, I've got this backpack. It's the most common, great mm-hmm. backpack. I love it because it has these customizable sections. It's basically a shell. Love it. And I can Velcro in whatever yeah. I need. Everything lives in a place here. Like, I only put my ND filters here. Never anywhere else. Okay. I only put my dead batteries here in a red pouch. Never anywhere else. And so on. You know, I know without having to looking that this is my SD card holder because I know exactly, you know, what, what pouch it fits in. Does it ever, does it hard? Yeah. (laughs) It's freaking hard. Like I've been doing this in this way for so long that I no longer have a visceral fear of failure upon arrival. The challenges are compartmentalized in my mind in a way that is approachable And I kind of know how to go through my checklist from pre-production to production to post-production. And I have lists and I pre-produce heavily and as much as I can plan in advance, I do. But when it comes to arriving in a new location and it's raining and the protagonist is late and not showing up and my translator doesn't understand what they're saying, you know, like those are challenging moments. Yeah. However, There's always a solution. Thinking as a cinematographer at all moments through production is convenient. It's nice that I am the DP as well as the director, as well as the editor, because I know how I'm going to edit. I know what I'm looking for. I'm also the DIT. I know the file naming convention. I know where everything is stored. I know everything. I know all aspects of production. So I trust myself and I've spent years building these this I've spent years building this foundation right. where I have 32 terabytes on my Google cloud. You know, I, I I have a global WeWork membership, so I know where I can go to get fiber internet in any country in the world. Like I have a global network of people who aren't even filmmakers in the destinations that I'm going to, so that if I need a friendly face because I don't feel safe going out to dinner at night, whatever the case may be, I've got people. Mm-hmm. And again, this goes back to sailing. This goes back to when I was 18 and 19. This, it's not unique to filmmaking. It's not unique to this the cinematographical experience that we put ourselves through. A lot of this is just relating to other humans and learning how to give so that they can see that you're trying to create something that isn't just taking. Right. And there's a huge difference. And then it becomes collaborative. So then, you know, going back to the gear, whether I use my A7 III or I use my A7S three, or whether I use, you know, local lights or the lights that I brought along, because I've put the focus on what I understand to be the essential story, which, you know, in the case of these hero profiles is like, there was a challenge in the community, the people in the community and the intellectual needs and disabilities community like locally in Chile, like they weren't they weren't being helped in a crucial way. And then somebody noticed that problem and came along and they did something to fix it. Like actually right now, Tammy, I don't have enough information. Mm. I'm just gonna be honest. Like I don't know who the protagonist is. I don't know who they helped. And it's possible that we're not gonna have access to that until I get on the ground. Right. But because I know how I'm gonna edit it more or less, like I know the arc that I want to go. And I know I want it to be an empowering, uplifting hero maybe montage of heroes kind of story and i've done that before i'm going to be able really quickly to just focus on the personal experience and what makes their perspective unique and focus on empowering them my tripod's there my camera's there i have a bounce that's the easy stuff
0: right um and then with the mic do you do lavs? do you bring that or do you just shoot a mic off your camera How how are you doing that?
1: Sometimes both. It really depends on the location. I love the Road Go Mm Two, which is a wireless mic setup. It's it. You know, a lot of people listening are, oh, that's only three hundred dollars. Yeah, yeah, no, but that's great. Yeah, you can have two um, inputs. Yep. Uh, and it's located and it gets plugged right into the camera. It's on the cold shoe, so you can have two mics speaking at once, and you can just plug a lav lavalier microphone into the um, transmitters and then it gets hardwired straight into the camera, which I mean it's, it's, it's a fantastic option when I'm working on commercial sets that need, you know, a more white glove approach. I get my $3,000 rentals. That's what I do. I also have a zoom with a shotgun set up for environmental room tone, also safety. Sometimes if I'm worried about anything, I'll just run my iPhone in the background just in case. That is not a good input. I n- have never wants to use that, but it's better than walking away with no. So there, I have all these backups. I have a plan B, I have a plan C because what if I run, oh my gosh, I ran out of AA batteries. <gasps> oh no, I forgot to format this SD card. <gasps> you know, you, you need to have a second option. And, and sometimes having a $180 microphone from Best Buy with an SD card burned into it, that's a great backup. That's a great safety. Um, yeah, what I'm actually doing, what I what I've been doing lately is hiring local sound folks, because I'm creating jobs, and I would rather spend $500 on hiring a local person, especially in COVID, than using my lobs. Now my loves are plan B. Mm-hmm. You know, like I will, I, I'm I now am able to use budgets. To create jobs and for me that's just deeply fulfilling and I don't even care about the cost savings anymore because they know people in their local filmmaking community and that's an investment in the global community that we're all building.
0: Right. Yeah. No, no. I think, uh, yeah, that's what I was thinking is it'd be great to just hire locally because then they're bringing their own uh, equipment so you don't have to travel with it. Because camera and tripod, the way that you've just said it, okay, that's that's pretty light. But now let's add three lights to that and you know, stands. And then that becomes a little, unless you have these like nicely packed uh, and light stuff, but then that's just you having to carry all that stuff. So.
1: Yeah. I, I don't use lots of lights. I get, I rent lights locally. I love natural light. I use natural light almost exclusively. I believe in good again, ultra light production approach is really, really crucial. And in a film like, like we don't exist um, that was filmed And why don't you tell us a a little bit about what that film is about and how
0: you, how you got the gift? Yeah, absolutely. And are you still working with Brandon?
1: Yeah, but not exclusively. I used to work for him and then uh, I branched off and created my own film company, like a happy little baby bird. And, you know, like we have collaborated. I just saw him on Saturday and I'm so thrilled because I think he's potentially moving to New York and like, we're just really great buds and being able to make that transition from coworkers with lots of intensity, as you can imagine, like 14 hour days. And I'm not exaggerating. Like I am really not. He and I work harder than anybody I've ever met. And maybe I just need to get out more, but yeah, I love working with him. He's a creative genius. And I think the best work that I've ever made with very few exceptions has come from our partnership. So I'm I'm very proud to call him a colleague but also more importantly a friend.
0: And also the 14-hour days are not just 14-hour days, isn't it 7 days a week as well? I mean, do you even get a day off?
1: Yeah. Yeah, when you're on a project. Well, I mean, we we have been, <laughs> we are getting older, I will say that. Like we both have uh, I'm married, he has a long-term partner. We have learned to burn ourselves less out of preservation. Cause if you burn yourself, you're not going to make anything beautiful and you'll do and break things. And that's just not worth it. And we've both experienced that, you know, so there, we have rules for a reason, which is really shouldn't go more than seven days. Right. You really shouldn't. It's just not good. It's not good. You will resent the project and you won't be effective on hour 13.
0: Right. And you, but if need... you can rest. Yeah. And also you do need a step back to, Yeah. see the project, sometimes we just need a little space. And then it's like, oh, my God, I got some great ideas. Totally.
1: Stepping back is everything. Like, if you're looking at it like this, like, you can't breathe. You don't know what you're not thinking of. I I couldn't agree more. So I'll tell you about Like We Don't Exist. Yes. So Like We Don't Exist is a short film that I co-directed with – an amazing director of photography and editor named Corey Ambring. And it is about a generational civil war experienced by ethnic minorities inside of Myanmar, which is also called Burma. And Burma, also called Myanmar, and I'll just use those two terms interchangeably, a.k.a. Yes. (laughs) um, Next to Thailand, next to China, next to Bangladesh, has since 1946 been controlled by in various forms of military dictatorship that has in multiple theaters made a concerted effort to eliminate certain ethnicities from their native land, including famously in in like 2016, 2017, the Rohingya. So there was a UN acknowledged genocide in the Northwest of Myanmar of hundreds of thousands, many more Rohingya people who are ethnically Muslim but also on an ongoing continuous basis since 1946, which makes it the longest ongoing civil war in the world. Wow. Against multiple other ethnic minorities, including the Kareni, who are distinct from their close neighbors, the Karen. And they are on the Thai Burmese border. And I got to know an individual during my travels through Thailand who shared his life with me. And his name's John, John Frico. And at the time, Corey and I were looking for a human story to make a film out of. He has a personal relationship with Thailand and I happened to be there at the moment. We made a pact similar to what Brandon and I did in Mongolia, which was we would put time aside to go to the space and time to tell a story. We wanted it to be a five minute film we ended up both quitting our jobs and moving to Thailand to pursue this project full time. And three years later, we produced Like We Don't Exist, which is a 33-minute award-winning film about the stories that were shared with us along the way.
0: Wow. And what, what position did you play in that?
1: Co-director, shooter, producer. So the, the production of this was really crucial because, as you might imagine, this is really sensitive subject matter. hmm very quickly, we realized that we did not want anything beyond a purely editorial voice, which is a way of saying we just wanted to edit it. And that was our voice. We didn't want to narrate it. This is not a documentary where you have a white person explaining. Right. It's completely inappropriate. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it's not right for the content. And also, it's just distracting because they have so much to say and so much to share. And what we discovered, we spent two weeks in the refugee camp uh, area on the border between Thailand and Myanmar where John Frico brought us. And there's a, there's a vibrant community living, working, struggling, overcoming challenges in that area together out in the vil- in the Thai village outside the refugee camp. And we very quickly realized that this was a huge subject and we could either focus on just one problem or we could try to create an ambitious montage of voices to sort of like a floating eye touch on a number of the, the most sensitive subjects that require action. And so beginning, middle, end, you know, we want to make them aware of the biggest issues that these people are facing. We want to touch on the human impact of what many diverse individuals, young, old, female, male, rich, poor, soldier, student, you know, diversity in the voices that we're hearing from. And how people can help and why they must act. So the film culminates in a call for support of youth education, which is a way of saying, if we can bro- break the poverty cycle, then one generation at a time, this community can help itself towards a brighter future. Um, sadly, the Karenni, after publishing this film in 2018, have experienced, and many other ethnic groups in Myanmar have experienced spring revolution um, or the spring coup, which was the military dictatorship, overthrew the budding democratic process spearheaded by Dong Sang Suu Kyi, who is also a, a complicated figure because she in, for, she denied oh, wow. the genocide against Rohingya for political reasons. But she is trying to keep the country together in a fractional moment. And so she stood for democracy and she is a figurehead. She's not actually a prime minister, but she and the other democratically elected or those who tried to be democratically elected were elected, were overthrown, put it back into home prison. And currently, as we speak, I'm still getting texts over a year later from friends of mine on the ground, this has become the latest justification in the latest violence against this ethnic group. We are not hearing about this in Al Jazeera or CNN or Sky News or, or any other news outlets. I am witnessing my same friends who helped me to produce this film in worse trouble than when we were there in 2017 filming. And it was bad then. Wow. And now we have tens of thousands of internally displaced persons, IDPs, in Myanmar, in Thailand, running for their lives, digging holes in the hillside, in the forest, to hide in because of the, the artillery bombing their home villages, displacing them from their own military. The, the, the combatants are villagers, ethnic minorities, and the military killing them indiscriminately. So this is difficult subject matter. It's, 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 it was difficult for us to have the stamina to continue this project. Both, both Corey and I struggled a lot with this story, but it's nothing compared to the friends. And I think of them as family who have had to endure literally generational civil war. And the least I can do is use the small platform that we've created to share because the film is called like we don't exist, people just don't know and my call to action is now that you know about this, what are you going to do about it and there, there's so many things that so many different people can do and, and, and that has become a lifelong pursuit of mine is to empower and to advocate for the narrative of people who are experiencing civil war
0: Now did you speak the language? No <laughs> no or did you have interpreters? I mean how did you
1: no how did you communicate? Um, I speak French. I speak English. I speak uh, French, Spanish. (laughs) (laughs) I don't speak Thai. I don't speak Burmese. I don't speak Kereni. I don't speak any of the Hill tribe languages. John Frico inspired the film. He joined our production process. He became our production manager. We kept the crew very small. Corey was DP. I was a second shooter. John was a translator. We also brought in another um, collaborator named Jenna Spitz. She took some photography So, and she she joined us for part of the production process, but it was really, you know, John, Ansley, Corey, John speaks Burmese. He speaks some of the hell tribe languages. We hired other people along the way, meaning somebody was standing around, heard that we were going to do an interview. We made friends with them and they came in and translated for us and we paid them, you know, and they were happy to be part of the production process. One thing we did very early on was we slowed down the entire production process. We spent Days and weeks, listening, learning, never picking up a camera. And this goes back to what we've done, what I do in all of my other productions. You have to listen to people first. But especially when you're about to ask somebody about the worst day of their life, you need to understand the politics surrounding it, the context and a lot of it won't translate into the final film, but it is necessary for the tr- the transfer of information so that people can trust.
0: Is that hard for you? Like when you go into a production where you don't speak the language and then you're relying on a translator, or do you feel like you're a little outside the story, like trying to get in but having to wait? Or how do you connect in not really understanding what's being said
1: at the time? I love the way that you rephrase that question because I think – that we all speak, I don't want to get to whatever here, but I do think that we all speak the same language. I do think that we can all feel each other.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: I think the vocabularies that we have inherited are essential, obviously, you know, but like, what did Nietzsche say about language? Like it is a huge limiter and we can, there's so much that remains to be understood outside of language. And so energetically when I'm interviewing somebody, but they're not speaking they can't understand the words physically coming out of my mouth. We set everything up so that we are solving a conversation. So I am the eyeline. They are speaking to me
0: mm-hmm.
1: and I'm creating space for them energetically. And I, I don't know how to describe it unless you're in the room. It's, it's an, it's an energy thing. Yeah. You know, when you are giving and extending energy and receiving what they're giving and extending, it's tangible. Mm-hmm. And I don't know how to describe it, but I am present and I'm never looking at the translator. I am always always looking at the person I'm having a conversation with keeping sentences short is helpful. Mm -hmm. So if you're trying to access powerful emotions, don't give them a long preamble, you know, ask them specifically how they feel about something and you build a narrative, you build a story. This is difficult for villagers who don't understand they need to speak in complete sentences. And sometimes they ramble about things that aren't relevant and sometimes the people who we've hired to translate don't understand how to transcribe. So there's lots of stumbling blocks along the way, but we've developed a lot of, why am I speaking the third person? I've developed a lot of, <laughs> what was that? I've developed a lot of best practices for how to create intimacy, even when you don't speak the same language. It's possible. You, ha- you just have to simplify Ask them to slow down. I'm doing a bad job of that. I'm creating run-on sentences. I'm making your job harder than it's going to need to be, Tammy, because I'm going from one sentence to the next. Like, I'm just changing subjects and speaking too quickly. Like, being able to create a space where people don't need to do that because you've slowed things down and because they don't need to rush because they feel respected and you're not asking them too much at once, you can literally lift sound bites that way. That's how you build a narrative. Yes,
0: Yeah. Well, and I like what you said, um, you know, and just listening and it's your vibe too. It's your energy. Like you were saying, the energy that you're giving to other people provides the space and feeling safe to share because you're connected. You're not like, you know, I always hate this is when you're talking to somebody and then they're they're looking everywhere, but what, and then it's like, I feel like you're not even listening anymore. Maybe I should just stop. (laughs) But you know, it's like everything, but that's the disconnect. So
1: much, so much.
0: So people, if you're talking to somebody, look at them, listen, not think about what are you going to say to what they're going to say. Try to really listen to what they're telling you. What information are they giving you or not giving you?
1: Absolutely. I notice a lot too. People think they know what questions they're going to ask. And as a result of that, if you don't write things down, therefore, you're not flexible enough to follow what paths they volunteer And so it's really easy to be like, oh, I was going to ask another question. And then they just said something really powerful. And you, I've noticed other people have a tendency to bulldoze and somebody offers a little gem. They offer a little vulnerability and then you just, you know, go down through, okay, well this is what I was about to ask next. Like using your lists to empower and build intimacy rather than to bulldoze. The intended story is crucial because people are bidding for your energy when they give you something personal, they want to know if you can be trusted with what they just offered. Even if they already feel like they trust you, if you swat it out of their hand energetically by just ignoring what they just offered, they won't offer things like that again as the conversation goes on. And if you're just super focused on the talking points that you're trying to hit, because you're afraid that you won't be able to remember them, or you're afraid you're going to run out of time and what they're saying isn't relevant. You're completely ignoring the real story that they are telling you what the real story is. You have a preconceived notion of what their story is, and you're asking them to hit the points. You can always, at the end of the interview, ask them to say a couple of specific lines if you know that they didn't get it. Yeah. And and also
0: with asking a question and where they lead you, what we did, like, you know, I'd, I'd ask a question and stuff, and then... the all the gems you were giving me, but I wouldn't have thought of those questions, but you just happened to give it to me within the flow of the story. So I, that's what I love about interviewing is the things you're going to learn. Like I just got the list just because it's like points to keep me on, but doesn't mean I always ask those. I'm always listening. And then I want to like, oh, wait, that's a good point. Let's talk about that. And And then the interview goes where it needs to go. Exactly. Which might be better than where I wanted it to, or thought, not not that I wanted it to go somewhere, but just
1: where I thought it was supposed to go. Yeah, but that's what I'm talking about. Like going back to like, why did you get into filmmaking in the first place or storytelling or photography or storytelling can be, remember vlogging? Remember like yep. tumblers? Remember, remember like travel journals? Like you can have an audience of one and if it like impacts them because the joy that you had to share was so sincere and truly derived from a a shared moment, then that's real and it's everlasting. And a hundred years from now, it will still be relevant. This is important. It sounds obvious. Because in documentary, we start to run into a lot of perceived conflicts of interest. Where I've received criticism where it's like, oh, well, you're editing it, so your point of view is in there. Or like, oh, well, you didn't f- sell this film, so you don't take yourself seriously as a storyteller. You know, or it, it, things that in other contexts are completely appropriate. But in the context of putting the story first and building intimacy for a very specific purpose, is, it's, 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 very, it's a very specific approach, you know? And so if you're trying to impeach that approach because you have a different agenda or you have a different mission, like, yeah, obviously, like, this approach wouldn't work for, like, somebody trying to, like, make a career as a union grip. Like, yeah, that's not going to work. But if you ever want to interview your dad before he dies, you're going to have a tough time. You know? Like, like you can't take your union grip approach. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know? Towards, like, making your dad feel safe so that he can say things on camera. It's scary talking to a camera. I get nervous. Right. You know? Yeah. Every single time. And so when... Like, for example, with Like We Don't Exist, it's a political subject. People's lives are at stake by speaking up and witnessing their personal experience. You know, we got death threats while in Myanmar. We were followed. Like, I have friends and colleagues who have been imprisoned for doing less than what I've done in that country. And I can never go back to Myanmar. And we hired local people. They they have to live there once I leave. So, like, this is crucial. Are you asking people to tell a story or are you asking people to be a witness? It's two different things. And you can't disagree with somebody saying my village was bombed on a Tuesday. That's just any disagreement is propaganda. Yeah. Those are facts. They've shared facts with you. And if you build a narrative around facts and you ask somebody how those facts made them feel, yeah, now you're just telling truth. And then it's just your job to package it in a respectable, appropriate, artistically relevant way. That's all I want to do for the rest of my life, yeah. pretty much. That's it. It's that process. And anything else yeah. is just for fun.
0: Well, wow. This is a lot. This is a lot. Thank you so much. Uh, I don't, you've spent so much time with me and just gave me so much information. It's just so great. I loved it. Do you maybe just wanting to be on these types of crews? And I think you hit on something very good. Ask, reach out to people and just ask because Lord knows how many people aren't doing that. And they think, Oh, my God, this person's too famous. There's no way they'd even respond to me. So I thought that was just if you want to find filmmakers that you like and then reach out to them as easy as that. But like, do you have any words of wisdom for people that would like to do more story driven uh, pieces and how to get involved in that?
1: Absolutely. I think you just revitalized one of my biggest takeaways. I think all the best things that have happened to me in life have been because I've asked, but you can't just ask. You have to give you know, like I've had a lot of people who are inspired by my story. You know, I do a lot of I've done TEDx's and lots of lectures. And I, I speak with a lot of young, younger, I'm not that old, younger people who are coming up, because I was given so many resources and chances and people, people trusted in me when I had no skills, I only had enthusiasm. And that's a that's a tough place to be in. It's easy as a younger person to think I have nothing to offer. But it's, it's not true. You have so much to give. You have energy and discipline. And watching somebody learn and working hard at the same time is just as empowering for the person teaching as it is for the person receiving. If you are asking, give. Give your time for more than six months. If someone's investing in you, commit. Commit to them. And by committing to them, you're committing to yourself. Don't commit to toxic environments, obviously. Never commit to a toxic environment, but build something you believe in. If you don't have any mentors, if there's nobody who really calls you to ask, I my best advice to creators of any age or level, because I think we should all remember, that, and I need to take my own advice, is to be bold and to be d- decisive. Chances are, two years later, you're still going to be thinking about it. And unless you put yourself on a deadline, and unless you take massive action, you're never going to do it. Like, I, I'm i going to be vulnerable here for a second, Tammy. I went to Panama last year. I filmed a beautiful film. I haven't edited it yet because I'm so busy that I haven't had a chance to go back to my passion project. And it's the last day of filming was, I think, one of my favorite days of filming of all time because so many magical things happened back to back. And I filmed with so many extraordinary people. And I haven't even had a chance to check that out. And it's because I'm not being bold and I'm not being decisive for good reasons. I'm a busy lady. I'm working on three films right now. I don't really have time to start editing another one. Like I have to put my family and my business and myself first in this moment. But when it's time, this challenge never leaves for creatives, the necessity to be bold and to be decisive. And it's scary to do something that doesn't have a commercially viable output in mind at the moment. But if you're not bold, you'll never make it, and then you'll never innovate, and then nobody will offer you opportunities along the way. And you'll never know what opportunities will come along. Mm -hmm. But if you're decisive, and if you're viciously guarding your vision, then it will excel. No matter what story it is that you're trying to tell, it 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 will succeed. It just will. And if you decisively finish the project, as I have sometimes failed to do, and you give yourself a time limit, as I have succeeded in
0: doing,
1: <laughs> then at times, then you will at least live with the satisfaction of having you know quenched your own creative vision, and it will make you a better creator in the future. No matter what comes of it, it's never a waste of time. Right. And even with failure,
0: like if anybody feels that it's like, it's never failure. It's always an opportunity to learn something. So no matter what projects you're on, even if they're hard at times, and you're just like, don't know what to do. um, But you're learning something. I mean, you're learning something like you did. I mean, look at all the places you went. And through each experience, whether you knew it or not, was teaching you something that you would be using in the future.
1: Absolutely. And in so many of those experiences, look, my dad stopped talking to me for like two years when I was younger, because I told him I was going to travel solo to Italy. And he was so triggered and convinced that something terrible was going to happen to me. The stakes were very high. And I wasn't even a, a professional storyteller yet. I was still just, you know, like traveling and learning how to speak to people in languages that I don't speak. But because I overcame that, because I felt like, it was me being true to myself. I was able to orient myself spiritually towards a path that made sense for me. And those are the building blocks of my professional career. That's not going to be everybody else's experience. You know, for some other people, like maybe they secretly really want to be a basket weaver and they want to tell stories through indigenous basket weaving and they feel a lot of pressure, like they can't leave the nine to five, even though it really aligns spiritually with like the life that they want to live. Once you start making small choices day by day to align yourself with your values, and maybe that's travel, maybe that's hearing and learning other people's stories, maybe that's being the best, best boy you can possibly be in in whatever community you want to build, you know, then that's what's there for you. And be, be brave, be bold, be brave, be decisive. Only you can do what you have to offer. And maybe people won't get it along the way but they will get it. Once you're your best version of yourself, everybody will get it then and then they'll all go, how did you do it? Right? Well, and, and just like
0: what we started the conversation with, and what you're saying is like, have a goal, put a timeline on it, and then do the dil- due diligence every day. And you will get there, just like you did when you wanted to sail. You had a goal, I want to sail in Greece. And then you sent out emails and it's the perseverance that's the thing is I think that sometimes we just don't know how f- I always think of the mountain you're climbing up the mountain the goal is to get to the top but you never know how close you are to the top so don't give up just keep moving and changing and like you did it's like you got there but it wasn't the end result because the guy you know ended up not being so great but we're there yeah so now it's about okay I'm there I'm making connections and now what am I going to do to shift? And th- and that's the other thing is like with anything, you're always going to have to shift. And just like you said, with the emails, I mean, every email, oh, shoot, I forgot to copy and paste that or, oh, I've got to say it a little differently for this person or a little differently for that person or, but as you're doing it, you're perfecting, 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 like you said.
1: With a sense of humility it's so crucial uh, with a with a huge sense of humility i make mistakes but i make less mistakes than i did before because somebody pulled me aside and said hey you copied in poland when you should have said ukraine now they're offended you know like and i don't make those mistakes anymore as a result because i felt that and i know what that feels like so so being focused and passionately following your gut i mean i think it's really really easy to say and i think a lot of people have a very difficult time putting it into practice because you're looking at the mountain and when my, my favorite analogy is fog, because you know, you need to head in a cardinal direction, <laughs> and see but you can only see as far out as your hands are. And that scares a lot of people because they can't see the path, right. they can see the path right as far as their feet go. And they know it's going that way and they know they're supposed to go that way, but they can't see far beyond. But you know, the, the higher you climb, you know, the fog starts to thin and then you start to get more visibility. And even if you go, shoot, I'm supposed to be heading west the whole time. Now you know that. Right. Now, and now you have that clarity and now you know better that, like for me, for example, with theater, I thought my my life and my dream, I wanted to be in theater. Turns out my dream changed. Right. I don't want to be a theater maker right now in life. And maybe in 10 years, I won't want to be a filmmaker. Maybe I'll want to tell stories by building community. Right. Maybe I'm going to want to, support my community through the stories my family is telling, or I don't know, thing, things have a way of changing and, and maintaining this flexibility of, of, okay, it doesn't need to be with this camera or with this light or with this backpack, but my focus is on the story that I'm trying to empower. And I can rent a local camera and that's fine for me, you know, within these parameters, but it enables you to have the free energy to put focus on the story, that's how you can achieve your goal. A little bit of flexibility.
0: Thank you so much for sharing so much knowledge and so much wisdom and just helping us filmmakers out thinking things differently. So I really appreciate your time. Thank Thanks you for being on the show.
1: Thank you for inviting me on the show. Thank you for your perseverance as well. I'm so inspired by how many of these episodes you've produced. Whenever I see the consistency of creators such as yourself, I am humbled deeply appreciative of having been invited to be part of this conversation so thank you so much
0: thank you so much for listening i encourage you to get out there and make a film reach out to your local filmmakers group to get involved and connect please subscribe to the show if you like it and follow me on instagram at Tammy maguero until we meet again what's your story